0: Well, if I have not met you yet, my name is Michael Fueling. I am the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are in week two of our series on the Ten Commandments. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Exodus chapter 20, the book of Exodus chapter 20. And the first two commandments are dealing with the Israelites' worship specifically. So I want to ask you a question in light of worship. I want you to imagine, this is dangerous, but I want you to imagine that you had full control over our church's music, sound, and space. Now, this is what we're going to call a rhetorical question, which means don't say it out loud. In fact, here's my challenge. Go to your community group or go out with your family or somebody or friends for lunch and talk about it there. But what would you change first? I mean, you're in control, and any change you make, we're all gonna go, you're awesome, we support you, there will be no rebellion, there will be no coup, you get to change whatever you want our worship, our music, our sound, our space. Do you have it? You got it in your brain. Oh, if I could change one thing. Okay, now, why did you choose that thing? Two options. Is it a preference, which is not bad, by the way. It's okay to say, I would love my preferences to be imposed on everybody else always. (laughs) But maybe it's a preference, and that's fine. I have a lot of preferences as well. Maybe it was something that you said, you know what, I think if this thing changed, God would get so much more glory in our worship services. Maybe that was it. Probably for most of you, it was a preference, wasn't it? Maybe, possibly. All right, let's be honest. So what happens here? Uh, is very emotional for a lot of people. In fact, churches divide over this. Like There are legit fights, people who are no longer speaking to each other any longer simply because of what happens in terms of corporate worship. All right, so because it's sensitive, let's ask more questions. Sound good? All right. Does God care how we worship here this morning? Are there rules... Can you, in your brain, point to a worship service rule in scripture? All right. When well, you can imagine Jesus visits a hundred churches, and he is going to rank these churches from least glorifying to God to most glorifying to God, what would his metric be? Like he's got a checklist. He walks in, he says, Christ centered, check filled with the Spirit, check orderly, check like what is what is his checklist, right? That he walks into a church service and evaluates whether or not it's glorifying to him or not. Maybe here's a better question. Is my checklist his checklist? So in a moment, we're going to look at Old Covenant laws as it pertains to worship. Um, but what I have to do is I have to take 20 seconds. You can time this down. I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. But in 20 seconds, I'm going to give you a quick high-level reminder of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You guys ready? We need to understand this. We're going to talk about Old Covenant worship. Two things. Number one, as a Christian, you're not under the new Old Covenant. You're under the New Covenant. So all the laws of the Old Covenant, are you under them? The answer is no, you're under the New Covenant. Number two, thank God... All of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Covenant, which is the words written by Jesus, the apostles. What we now have is our New Testament in your Bible. So are the Ten Commandments applicable to everybody who follows Jesus? The answer is absolutely yes. Was that 20 seconds? Did I do it? 21? Did somebody say 21? (laughs) Touche. I repent. All right. Uh, Old Covenant worship. Let's go back to Old Covenant laws on worship. What was regulated? Now, you got to understand... I am giving you literally the tip of the iceberg. Okay? We don't have time to go into all of it. My my dream is actually when we're done with Exodus to go into Leviticus and we're just going to uncover all of these Levitical laws. It's going to be a blast. I'm serious, it will be. All right. Old covenant worship required first Mediation. This was done by priests, and the priests would have to be cleansed, and you needed a mediator between the people and Yahweh, because Yahweh is holy and perfect, and the people are sinners and rebellious, and what happens when a sinful person comes into the presence of a holy God? They are obliterated forever. So to avoid that, God created a system of priests or mediators, and the priests would go through some ritual cleansing so that they could approach God. But was there still even distance between God, Yahweh, and the priests? Definitely, there was. And so in order for the people to worship, you needed representation before God, and God created an entire legal system of how people can approach him in worship. It wasn't just religious laws. They were actually legal, national laws that determined how you could and could not approach God. God required a mediator. Number two, God required blood. Uh, God required blood sacrifice because the only atonement for sin, the only payment for sin in God's economy, which is the only economy, is blood. And so God required That there would be a sacrifice for sins that would be a part of the worship, if you will, and that was required for worship, and the priests would actually be the ones who sacrificed. Now, in ministry, there are all these interesting little skills you have to learn in order to do it well. If you were going to be a priest or a minister of the Old Covenant, you were you had to learn the art of butchery. You had to be skilled with killing and gutting animals. You had to be, by the way, very strong. You know this notion in your, in your brain when you think of an old covenant priest of an old guy with a robe and stones? Maybe some of them were like that. The vast majority of these guys could take you down. They were literally hauling hundreds of pounds of carcass all day. It's a very extreme, intense job, which is why there was an age limit. They got turned over around the age of 50 for the ones that were actually doing the butcher work. The new covenant, by the way, in new covenant worship also requires a mediator, does it not? And our mediator is no longer a priestly system. That system is retired. We now have one priest. His name is, it's church guys, Jesus, who is the one mediator that stands between God the Father and all of humanity. There is only one mediator now. There are no others. There is no other person or deity imagined or otherwise that could possibly represent you to God. It's Jesus. And new covenant worship also still requires blood. But the old covenant system, that legal system of sacrifices, it has been retired. And now it is the blood of whom that allows you access to God. His name is Jesus isn't that great it's church what's the answer the answer is always Jesus or the Bible but today it's going to be Jesus so the new covenant also requires blood but now we have the shed blood of Jesus no longer their weekly sacrifices but one sacrifice for all for anybody who would become part of the family of God through faith in Christ the old covenant worship also required order and liturgy there was a method there was a process in fact when you get to the new covenant under the new testament the apostle paul in the book of first corinthians chapter 14 he has rules for how people the people of god gather one of them is that our worship is to be orderly so that a bunch of people don't get up and shout all at the same time or so that pagan practices brought into the church are kind of kept at bay because pagan worship was chaotic and disorderly. In fact, he says if someone's gonna speak, it's gonna be one, two, at the most three in certain circumstances, all in order, very timely. When, they're, when somebody is praying, we should all be able to hear what that person is saying so we can all agree together. This idea of unity and order and focus in corporate worship is a New Testament principle, also applied in the Old Testament as well. All right. What were you not allowed to do? What were you not allowed? Number one, you were not allowed in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, close proximity to the presence of God. There was distance. Even the priest. I mean, he could get close, the high priest, but, but there's still distance. In the New Covenant, by the way, the, the Spirit of God, which dwelt in the temple before, or the tabernacle. Remember the book of Acts? The Spirit left the temple and now dwells who? It's not Jesus. Well, yes, but who did the spirit and dwell in Acts (laughs) 2. The church, you. So it's interesting because now because of the shed blood of Christ, you have full access to God because his spirit dwells in you. That is a mind-blowing concept for the old covenant saints. Last week, we saw another rule. No other gods. Are there exceptions? No exceptions, no other gods. And then today, this is, I think, a very apropos rule. Yahweh is not to be imaged in any way ever. Yahweh, God, is not to be imaged in any way ever. So in Exodus chapter 20, we've talked about that God is establishing a new nation out of a former group of slaves, the people of Abraham. He's bringing them to a new land It's known as Canaan or the land flowing with milk and honey would eventually become the nation of Israel. And he's creating for this nation a set of laws, 613 laws specifically, that make up the Old Covenant Law, also called the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law. Uh, These 10 commandments are going to be the foundation for this new legal system. And And I need you to catch this. If you're a Jew coming out of Egypt, this whole system is backwards and nonsense. Nothing about what God is going to do is going to make sense to them. So before this system was put into place, if I was an Israelite or a Jew living in Egypt, here's, here's what I would have done. I would have worshipped idols. An idol is basically, it is a, a statue or an image that represents a God and helps you by giving you its power or accessing its power. So if I was an Israelite, before, before Exodus, if i been an Israelite living in Egypt in slavery, I am not worshiping Yahweh. I am worshiping the idols, these statues, these images of Egypt's gods. Now, here's what I would do. If you were an Israelite living in Egypt, you would get to pick and choose. This is kind of fun. You get to pick and choose. Who's your family God going to be? You could actually go out into the woods, you could go out, you could find a stone, you could carve an idol for yourself, you could go purchase an idol, and then you would take this idol or these idols, you'd put them in your home, they would be your family, gods, and then you would feed them. Or you would give offerings and sacrifices to them. Now the, the funny thing is, they're literally just stones and wood. And yet these people, in their logic, said this makes complete sense. We are going to go give our heart, our treasure, our money, our time to these little figurines that somebody carved out of a tree that they chopped down. And this was completely logical. If I lived in Egypt and I was an Israelite, I would have been able to worship in any way the priest told me to. I could have used my body in very inappropriate and perverse ways. In fact, I would have been encouraged. And then... Yahweh comes along. And I just need you to catch what happens. In one commandment, Yahweh makes everything they have ever known about worship illegal. And not just illegal, punishable by a generational curse. Exodus chapter 20, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, the moment this is said, I'm surmising. I know, but go with me. I imagine a global. Uh, what? <laughs> Why are you kidding? How are we going to worship? There's no way. This is over, right? What is worship if there is no carved image? That's literally how they would think about worship. So let me let me translate. Okay, Israel. You may never, ever, 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 ever make an image of me, ever, ever. Are we clear? Um, What about pictures of heaven? What about the sun? What about the moon? What about the stars? What about animals? What about plants? Okay, I will never allow you to limit me by your small imagination. The moment you take my glory and grandeur and you take some rock or inanimate object or piece of wood... And you say this looks like me. It is humiliating. It is trite. It is condescending. I do not take up residence in inanimate objects. Flat out rule for Yahweh. Yahweh will never take residence in an inanimate uh, object. Only Yahweh, and this is interesting, only Yahweh is allowed to make images of himself. Do you know that? You are never allowed to do it. And Yahweh has made multiple images of himself. And that is every one of us in this room. It is every child. Is it every adult? It's every old person, young person. Every person who lives on this planet is an image bearer made by God and only God is allowed to make images Of himself. In fact, in the ancient Near East, what you would do with an idol is you would respect it. You would honor it. It would have dignity inherently. And what God is saying in the book of Genesis and Exodus is that because we are image bearers, we have inherent dignity, and we deserve honor from one to another. In fact, Genesis 9-6 says, if you kill someone, then you have to be killed as well because you're killing somebody made in the image of God. It was the death penalty before there was even Old Covenant law. That's how serious God takes us. And somebody might say, well, then why don't we worship people? Because they're made in the image of God. Because you're not the thing. You and I are the image of the thing. And the thing, Yahweh, God, is the only thing that can be worshipped. So you don't get to make images. God has taken care of that all, all on his own. Now, you may not know this, but uh, Pastor Craig at Village Church East, Pastor Alex from Alliance Bible Church, we are preaching this Exodus series together. We do preaching prep on Monday mornings at Savory. We have a blast, and we had the greatest introduction to this sermon ever. You can make bobbleheads that are your face. Did you know that? they're only like $200. And so, (laughs) so we decided not to do it, but we wanted to open up our sermon and we wanted to make bobbleheads of ourselves. And I wanted you to imagine that I would be sitting up here. And then you came to me and said, Michael, Pastor Michael, I love spending time with you. It has been so much fun. You are a great listener. And I'd be like, we have literally not talked in ages. Look, you're bobblehead. I created and fashioned this thing in your image and likeness and I talk to it and when I talk to it, I'm talking to you and, and, and it promises, promises me things and you, you, you told me this and so I'm applying these promises that when I do these things to this and I give my tithes to this thing and I give my offerings to this bobblehead and, and, and you're like, what? I'm sorry, we have no relationship because I am not that thing and you cannot contain me in an image. A relationship with an image is not a relationship with the person, is it? And yet in their brains, this made complete sense to entire cultures and millions and millions of people that somehow the God or gods of this universe that created everything would somehow take a residence up in this object. Now, if Yahweh stopped there, the human heart would find so many loopholes. So here's what happens. Verse four goes on. You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or, and I love all the innies, any likeness of anything that is on in heaven above or that is in the earth. And I imagine if he stopped here, they would say, all right, we can do things under the earth. And he says, okay. Or anything that is in the water, under the earth. And in case if you're wondering, I want them out of your home, I want them out of the nation, verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them. Whether it's in a temple, anywhere, it doesn't matter. And you shall not serve them. All right, the book of Isaiah, there's this I think, hilarious passage I would like to read to you. It's from Isaiah chapter 44. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 16. I just want to read it because it tells you the foolishness and the stupidity of idols. And this is what Yahweh is trying to get across to these Israelites. And as you, as you know, these Israelites are going to hold on to their idols very tightly. Are they not? Yes, they are. Isaiah 44, we'll start in verse 16, actually. Half of it, talking about the tree that the carpenter chopped down, to make an idol. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half, he eats meat. He roasts it, and he's satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warned. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it, and he says, (laughs) this is hilarious, you're supposed to laugh out loud, by the way, when you read this, deliver me for you are my god. He literally just chopped down a tree and carved it and burned the other half. And then here's some of the commentary. They know not, nor do they discern. For he, the idol, has shut their eyes. So that when you give yourself over to this thing, it actually affects the way you think. So they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot understand. And then, and listen to this. No one considers. Is anybody thinking that's what he's saying? Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread in its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest into an abomination? Shall Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Like that thought process doesn't even go through their brain. Shut out. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Like their brain won't even go to the place to process the logic of what they are doing let me just say it differently idolatry makes us dumb it just makes us so not smart not logical not thinking it blinds us so why why is god so concerned with how they worship now there are some behaviors that when the human body soul engages in them they uniquely and profoundly impact every part of our life. What we find in the Old Covenant is that there are especially two of these behaviors that are the most litigated. They are the most legislated in the Bible. In fact, I can't think of too many other subjects that are legislated as much as these two subjects. One is how you use your body and sexuality. The other other one is how you worship. That there's something about our worship That as we engage it, it is a body soul experience, and it has this profound ability to impact us in ways that other actions don't. So the Old Covenant legislates our worship like crazy. It makes specific things illegal. It doesn't want us doing this or that. We're not allowed to practice worship in this way or that way. It is very narrow because there is only one way that we are supposed to worship, one God we are supposed to worship, and anything that deviates from this plan of worship is actually destructive to the soul. So I just want to make a quick application here for us. We come to corporate worship. And now, here, right? And our flippancy towards the whole thing far underestimates the weight of what happens when the human body and soul come together and lift up praise to God. Like what happens here is transformative, even if you don't understand it which is why God cares deeply for how we do things. And we want to make sure that how we do things is glorifying to him, keeps the main thing the main thing. And the problem is that so many people are caught up in how we dress and how we look and the style or this or that when we want to make sure we are obsessed with how we approach corporate worship with the things that God is most obsessed about, which is hearts inclined to him, lives devoted to him, and a a soul that wants to live to hide the name of Jesus Christ. So God cares deeply about what happens. It didn't just stop with the old covenant. Now, on a scale of one to 10, how emotional do you think God is about old covenant worship and new covenant worship? I'm going to go with a 10 out of 10. Let's read what happens. Verse five says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Isn't jealousy a sin? No, no, it's not. Jealousy is a sin when you're jealous for something that isn't rightfully yours. James 4, 5 says this. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. When we commit spiritual adultery, when our human soul gives adoration and worship to anything other than Yahweh, is he justified to be jealous of our souls? Absolutely, because he owns them because he designed them and he designed them for relationship with himself so how jealous is God verse 5 goes on visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me oh you want to worship an idol watch the generational curse pass from one generation to the next for four generations what you do with your worship impacts you your life your system your children your family and the generations after you but he gives something positive he says but showing steadfast love this is hased this is the hebrew word for god's covenant loyal faithfulness best image in the in the in the metaphor of marriage God says, but if you will worship me, I will show steadfast love, has said to thousands of those who love me and help and and keep my commandments. No idol would ever do this. No idol would ever say, I will be devoted to you with holy, righteous jealousy. I will fight for you. I will be faithful to you. I will love you. And this is what Yahweh says for these people. I mean, they don't even have categories for this kind of God. All they know are economic, trite, tit for tat, you do this, I do this, you do this, I do this, I give you an offering, you give me your protection, I give you this offering, you make sure that you give me food for the week or for the month or the year. That's all they had was economy. And what God was offering to them was something way, way, way more beautiful. All right, let's pull back. Uh, I want to invite you, open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter one. This will be very important, and I want to apply this to us in some very practical ways. We asked the question earlier, how do, how do you even get to the point where you're carving a block of wood and then you're offering things to it and you're asking it to deliver you? How, how does the brain even get there? So in Romans chapter one, I want to share with you what's called the idol spiral. And if you look at verse 23 and 25, I'll read these for you, but uh, I want you to see just kind of what happens in idolatry. Apostle Paul says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And these images were resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, is this a foolish exchange, to exchange the glory of Yahweh for an image? It's ridiculous. Verse 25 reiterates this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever forever. Amen. Now, here's the question that the idol spiral is going to answer. How do people get to this point? All right, step number one, suppression. In verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Nobody gets to the point of idolatry without suppression. Once something is suppressed, there's another thing that happens here. Number two, step number two is dishonor and gratitude. Let me translate this. That would be called entitlement. Verse 21 says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In fact, just the opposite, they began demanding of God. You owe me. I deserve Step number three, once there is suppression, suppression results in ingratitude and entitlement. And then the next logical step is the exchange. And that's what we just read in verse 23 and 25. They exchange the glory of God for a lie. But it doesn't just stop there. Verse 24 talks about step number four, which is the giving over. And this actually is the scariest part of the idol spiral. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, Among themselves. And this is the idle spiral. Now, I want to go back to number one, and I want to look at suppression, and I want to define suppression for you. Because I think this is one of the most dangerous, dangerous things that the human mind can do. And as followers of Christ, we need to be above this. Suppression is self-imposed ignorance. Refusal to follow logic that threatens my idea desires. Okay. I'll, I'll give you one of the most practical, obvious illustrations of suppression in the world. If you kill a puppy, there is rage. Yet the same people will legislate that a baby can be born And if the mother doesn't want it after it's alive, it can be killed on a table, and that is not a human being. What? Can we just pause for a moment? In your clearest of minds, does that make any sense? No, but I'm telling you, people fight for this, and you are ridiculous and illogical if you don't buy into this logic. Suppression. So what happens when you try to just simply debate the humanity of a baby, a baby in the womb, a baby just born, whatever. Here's what's going to happen. Here, here are the signs of suppression. Uh, number one, refusal to engage. La, 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 can't hear it. Shut them out, don't want to hear their voices, can't handle it. It's just total isolation. But if you keep pressing and they can't get away, there's a second stage of suppression, which is name-calling. Name-calling is what happens when you have no arguments left. You're a blank. You're a bigot. You're a whatever. When you're being called a name, by the way, you're probably right. Unless you're being a jerk, which I hope you're not, you're probably on to something. There's a third level to suppression, which is called gaslighting, which is where I blame you for the things I'm actually doing. Now, here's the deal. The person who is suppressing, are they doing these things on purpose? No. The human mind, the human heart, the human brain is, is designed because of sin to protect its idol. It, right, it will do everything it can to protect itself, even shutting off the most logical parts of its brain because the ideas or the things that you're saying are inconvenient to the preservation of itself. The idol wants to stay alive so badly. By the way, Christians, are you above this? Oh, I've, I've had some interesting confrontations on sin with some of you. <laughs> and I, I have said, hey, that is sin. You're so judgmental. No, I'm discerning. That's cool, <laughs> right? Why are you calling me a name? Let's just, let's just, have you ever been in that situation? You try to talk to somebody And it's boom, or it's I'm out, I'm done, we're gone, not having this conversation. There's something happening. Now, sometimes people do that because we're legit being a jerk, are we not? You can acknowledge that. But but sometimes this happens when well-intentioned people have thoughtfully reasoned, prayed over, prepared themselves to have a conversation with you, and your brain wants to preserve its idol, so what do you do? I'm not engaging. No, no, you're the problem. No, it's actually, you're the one who does this thing. I'll never forget, I had a conversation I was gonna sit down with, uh, it was years and years and years ago, I was gonna sit down with an older man in my life who I, I respected, and I had two things that I was gonna sit down with him about. And I think what happened is I went to my mentor, and I told my mentor that I was gonna have this conversation. I think the mentor went and told him, so he was prepared for it. So I went down to sit with him and I had the conversation and uh, I said, hey, I'd love to talk with you. And he responded and here's what he said to me. Having no category, at least to my knowledge at the time, what I was gonna say. He looked at me and he said, I have two things I wanna confront you on, Michael. And I said, okay, I actually came here to confront you. I didn't know you knew that, but okay. And he chose the two same words that I was going to confront him on. I found out later he had been told what I was gonna tell him and it was gaslighting one-on-one. He had no idea he was doing it, by the way. I want to be clear. I don't think there was one ounce of malicious intent whatsoever consciously. People who do this are not conscious. We are not conscious when we do it. We love to protect our idols. And these are simple mechanisms that our heart has devised. They're everywhere. They're all over the world, Christian or non-Christian. You're not immune to these things. I do them. You do them. These three things, watch for them. Running away, calling names, gaslighting. When those things happen, know that your heart is probably protecting something. All right, let's go to a so what? Number one is know your point of suppression. It is one of the most dangerous mechanisms because it allows idols to live far longer than they ever should, and idols are devastating to the thriving of the human soul. If you get to the point of suppression and it continues on, The idle spiral will start moving very quickly. You'll notice that you get to the next level because entitlement, ingratitude, a pointing wagging finger at God when things don't work out for you. That's those are all signs that you have passed the point of suppression, and now your heart is becoming corrupted through ingratitude, blaming. You're a victim, and God is the victimizer. And then you're going to start watching as idols begin to creep in. In America, we typically don't um, we don't fashion things right out of wood and stone. What we do is we take experiences or people or things and we make them our God. All right. So number two, recognize idolatry quickly and repent. I mean, the moment you see idolatry, recognize it. There's two kinds of idolatry. There are so many probably better ways to phrase this, but in my brain, this makes sense. There's number one, intentional idolatry, which is where you actually go out of your way to create something, an object, right? That is so obvious. But the second kind of idolatry, which is not as obvious is accidental idolatry. And I say accidental for the Christian because I've never met a Christian who's like, I believe in Jesus, I trusted him for my salvation, but I'm going to intentionally take him off the throne and put this person, this thing, this experience, this agenda, this vision, this dream on the throne of my heart. Like, I've never met anybody who says that on purpose. So what we find is that sin has deceived us, and so we put something on there, and sometimes we don't even know it until someone tells us, or until this thing actually comes back to to bite us. So the New Testament comes along and the New Testament actually begins to put intangible things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed all in the idolatry category. Like This is very different than what the Old Testament understood idolatry, but this is where the Christian's idolatry comes from. And all over the New Testament, almost every book, there's a warning, flee idolatry, not just the idols that you make out of your hands, but flee anything that wants to take the place of God on the throne of your heart. So last week, I gave you a spectrum, and like all of these commandments, there is a spectrum. So we're going to play a game here together. Um, I'm going to give you a bunch of statements. They're listed from 10 all the way down to 1, and what I want you to do is find what is the highest number that you agree with. This is called the idolatry spectrum. You ready? What's the highest number that you agree with? Uh, 10. I worship physical things as God on purpose. Eight, I worship icons or images because they are filled by God. Here's a six. I give talismans and statues spiritual power. I believe there's something inherent in them that has power. Now, once we cross the five threshold, we're moving away from objects and we're moving into the, some of the intangibles. Here's a, number four. I will treat my desires and pleasures as my God despite knowing what the Bible says. Three. I knowingly give my first love to something or someone other than God on purpose. Two. I unknowingly give my first love to something or someone else without even noticing. And then here's number one. I use no images to worship God and seek to ensure nothing replaces God as first in my heart. I think what you'll find is very few of you are on the number one, right? I think most Christians on a regular basis find ourselves at number two, Some, if you've been rebelling against God and you're really angry and you're maybe a little bit deeper down the idol spiral, you might be doing these things on purpose. That might be very real. But most Christians are in this two place where we find ourselves with idols on the throne of our heart and we didn't even know it. We've been living out of them, treating them like they're gods. And sometimes it takes somebody in our family, in our life to tell us, I think something has become more important to you than God himself. My huge encouragement for you would be to find the idols in your life, get rid of them, and repent quickly. I need you to hear this. When our hearts worship anything but the one true God, it is a potent formula for destruction, and we begin the idol spiral, and it is destructive to our souls and our bodies and our relationships. I don't know if the Holy Spirit right now is bringing something to your brain. I don't know if he's bringing something saying, hey, I think this is an idol in your life, right? And then you might be like, ah, be quiet, Holy Spirit. I don't want to talk to you right now. I got other things to do that's really inconvenient, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, shush. (laughs) Don't do that. The Holy Spirit is for you, is for your life, is for your thriving. Anytime the Holy Spirit brings conviction to you, it is never for your shame and only for your joy. We love to suppress the Holy Spirit, don't we? When he's not convenient, Let's not do that. So what number three? Worship our triune God and worship him alone. Yahweh would progressively reveal more and more of his nature and character. And this culminates with Jesus, who is the image of God and fully God himself. We see that God is the Father, is Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Spirit. The Son takes on flesh, and we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. That is it, and we do not image God so as to worship him, ever. This is not what we do. We don't image him so as to worship him. Now, the new covenant, it still requires a mediator and blood, and I'm so grateful the priestly system has been retired I'm so thankful that the sacrificial system has been retired. And right now we have one God who has shown his covenant faithful love to us by giving us his son who would die on the cross, who would be our one permanent priest, our one permanent sacrifice, so that anybody who trusts in Jesus can be given the presence of God in them, not in some idol, but the full presence of God, the spirit of Christ dwelling inside of you. And all of that is not by being good. All of that is offered to you through faith in Jesus, period. Now, this is a lot on idolatry. And here's the summary statement. Idols will kill you. Worshiping God will bring you life. And today, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, may today be the first day that you place your faith not in an idol, but in the God who saves from idols not in the idol who destroys you, but in the God who loves you and gives you life and made you and is jealous over your soul who died on the cross and was raised from the dead as validation that his payment was accepted. So today, if you believe in Jesus, my challenge for you is trust in Christ today. If that is a decision you wanna make, we would love to encourage you, support you, tell somebody you came with, tell somebody you know that loves Jesus and say, I've made a decision to trust him for the first time today. Don't let that leave without telling somebody. Don't leave here. If you know today, you believe in Jesus Christ God in the flesh the image of God on earth fully God and fully man if you believe in him today trust in Christ if you have an idol today kill it do whatever you can take whatever next step you need to take so that this idol is removed from your life. May we be whole, full worshipers of the one true God. And communion is this beautiful remembrance that we serve one God who loves us and died for our sins. In a moment, we're gonna partake of elements. In fact, the elements, if you wanna grab them, are right at your feet underneath the chairs. And and we do this to remind ourselves of the high priest, Jesus, whose one sacrifice on the cross was shed so that anybody could be saved from idolatry reconcile back to God and be called sons and daughters of the Most High. If you're visiting with us, I want to invite you to partake of communion if you have personally trusted in Jesus. If your kids are in the room, if they've trusted in Christ and mom and dad, you're okay with it. Kids, you are welcome to participate in communion. If you've never trusted in Jesus, we ask that you not partake because the partaking is a declaration of your faith in Christ. And if you're not there, there's no reason to to partake. We're going to have a time of silence. Uh, It's an opportunity for you to go before the Lord and confess. Maybe the Spirit has brought some things up. Maybe there's some suppression that you have been guilty of and now you know it. I would love if I could actually show people their suppression. I cannot. That's something that the Holy Spirit is going to have to do. It's an opportunity for you to confess, to talk to God and to be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. When we're done with that, uh, I'm gonna read some scripture, and then we're gonna partake together of the elements uh, at the same time as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have some time alone with the Lord.